I did say a couple of messages ago that we were coming to the end of our series on bibliology, and I must admit I feel a bit like the Apostle Paul, who used the word finally a few times in his epistles before he actually came to the ending and finishing off that letter. But for this morning, we're going to continue on in our study. And we did consider the last time the indestructibility of Scripture. And we are told by comparison that the grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. And that verse, and others like it, well, it doesn't really need much unpacking. It's pretty straightforward in what it means. And the fact that Scripture remains today with us, even though it's an ancient book, and even though it's been ferociously and continuously attacked through the ages, is testament to the fact that it is the Word of God, and that God most surely does keep His promises concerning it. Now, I did take as a starting point the last time Jeremiah 36 and King Jehoiakim's treatment of the Scriptures to trace the failed attempts through history of uh, man's endeavors to try and rid society of the Scriptures of holy truth. And we looked at those unrelenting and, and yet unsuccessful attempts to destroy the Scripture. And with a backward glance over history, we are encouraged that no matter what this wicked world would seek to throw uh, at the Scripture and tries to do with the Word of the Lord, we know that it will abide forever. We are blessed to have an indestructible book in our hands. Now, as Christians, no doubt, we want to know all that can be known about God. We don't want to have anything missing from God's special revelation to mankind, nor do we want anything mixed with it that is not from God. And this brings us this morning to the consideration of the contents of the Bible that we have in our hands. The Bible's a book like no other. We've seen that in studies gone past, both to its origin and its power and different things. But the Bible is also like no other modern book because it is one single volume that is made up of many smaller books written by various authors from different backgrounds at different times, and when they were in different places. And naturally, this raises the questions about how these books were collected together to form a single volume. When did this happen? Who made the critical decision of what was included and what was rejected? And why should we think that we have the list of books that we have? Why should we think that that list is right? Now, all these questions pertain to the area known as canonicity. And that's what we're going to think about this morning. We're going to consider the canonicity of Scripture. What do I mean by that? Well, the word canon, it comes from a Greek word which basically means read or cane. Later, it took on the meaning of rule or standard, since a stiff reed was used for the purpose of measuring. And this is the meaning of the word when Paul says in Galatians chapter 6, and the verse 16, and as many as walk according to this rule, the Greek word canon, peace be on them and mercy and upon the Israel of God. And there, uh, the canon refers to that rule of faith that Paul had already laid down in uh, that book of Galatians, namely that justification is by faith alone. That's the standard. Again, in Philippians chapter 3, in the verse 16, the apostle Paul, he writes, let us walk by the same rule, or canon, the same line, the same measurement, let us mind the same thing. 
Now, historically, the word canon came to be used to refer to the list of books which are recognized by believers to be inspired of God. Now, on the one hand, deducing which books are inspired, it seems to be a human process. Christians gathered together at church councils in the first uh, several centuries A.D. for the purpose of officially recognizing which books are inspired. But it's important to remember that those councils, they did not determine which books were inspired. They simply recognized what God had determined. And a book belonged in Scripture, in the canon of Scripture, from the moment God inspired its writing. You see, there's a big difference in defining the canon as a list of books recognized to be inspired and a list of books officially declared to be inspired. The church can make nothing inspired by her declaration. The church simply recognized the inspiration of each book. And it's important to distinguish between the determination and the discovery of canonicity. God solely is responsible for determining. God's people were responsible for discovery and then bringing those different books together into one volume. Now, this subject of canonicity, it's important for a number of reasons. And I'm going to give four to you this morning. Firstly, the Bible contains all the truth on divine subjects that's accessible to man. The Bible contains the will of God. It speaks of the fall of man, the way of salvation, our responsibilities, and also our eternal destinies. If we're unsure of the canon of Scripture, well, how can we be sure of any of those important doctrines that's contained therein? How can we be sure of our faith? Secondly, understanding the canonicity of Scripture is important because of those who would add to Scripture and so require doctrines and practices that are foreign to what God has revealed. And we think especially here of the Roman Catholic Church. In an A.D. 1546 at the Council of Trent, in reaction to the Reformation, they declared 14 extra books, the books of the Apocrypha, that they were canonical. You see, they declared them. It wasn't simply that they recognized them, but they declared them, and thus they added them to the Scripture. And I intend to deal with the Apocrypha at another time, probably at the next Bible study. But we have no doubt that that edict there at the Council of Trent had violated Revelation 22 and verse 18. And we read there, For I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book, if any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. Thirdly, another reason why it's important to understand canonicity is that there are those who claim to be evangelical who add to special revelation of God. Not necessarily something inscripturated in some document or some book or some extra thing like that, but we can say additional uh, new revelation as they would claim. And here we refer to the charismatics in particular, who would take their so-called extra-biblical revelation as having the same authority as the Scripture. Now, if we don't know why we accept the Bible as we have it, the canon of Scripture, the rule of faith, and practice, how are we to respond 
to those who hold extra revelation? Does it belong to the canon? Is it the rule of faith or not? Is it the standard which we should lay our lives beside and, and adapt our practices according? And therefore, it's important for us to understand the subject of canonicity. Now, fourthly, why else is it important? Well, there are those who would deny the inspiration of numerous books in the Bible, claiming that they do not belong to the canon of Scripture, and, and so they seek to overthrow the confidence of the church in the Word of God. They are in danger of bringing the judgment of Revelation 22 and verse 19 upon themselves. And we read, And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. Now, how can our faith, how can our faith remain firm in the face of such godless opposition unless we know why we believe what we believe concerning the canon of Scripture, the 66 books of the Bible that we hold in our hands. And this is why it is an important subject. Now, the difficulty in determining the biblical canon, it really arises from the fact that the Bible itself does not give us the list of books that belong in the Bible. The Bible itself doesn't do that. We have that little index to start, the little list of books, but the Bible itself does not give us the list of books that com compose and make up the canon of Scripture. Now, recognizing which books were in the canon was a process conducted first by Jewish rabbis and scholars and later by early Christians. And that leads us on to consider the criteria that the church used to determine whether a writing is canonical or not. Not that they determined it to be so, but the criteria by which they recognized it to be inspired, the inspired Word of God. Now, the way I want to approach this is by looking at the canonicity of the Old Testament books and then the canonicity of the New Testament books. And it's really when we consider the canonicity of the New Testament books that we come to the, the tests of canonicity, the criteria that were applied, the tests that were applied to see if a, a certain piece of literature, a book, belonged to the canon of Scripture. So we're going to consider the canonicity of the Old Testament books. Now, from its beginning on the day of Pentecost, the New Testament church considered the Hebrew Bible as the Word of God. The writings that composed the Jewish Scriptures, now what we would call the Old Testament, they were fixed and had been for several centuries prior to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. First century Jewish historian Josephus, he offers a list of 22 Old Testament books accepted by the Jews, which appears to match our current 39-book collection. Now, the reason why 22 and not 39, it's simple to explain. Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles, well, they were one book, not split in two like we have. There were other books which were joined together. Judges with Ruth, Jeremiah with Lamentations, and Ezra with Nehemiah. And for Josephus, at least, the Old Testament, uh, the Old Testament canon, it seemed settled. 
And this is what he said, Although such long ages have now passed, no one has ventured neither to add or to remove or to alter a syllable. And we have similar sentiments expressed concerning the Old Testament canon and other Jewish literature at that time. But we don't lean on the witness of Josephus. We lean on the testimony of Jesus. And the reason why the church accepts the Old Testament canon, it's a very simple one. The Lord Jesus Christ accepted it. And since our Lord accepted it, well, then there's no reason whatsoever for His people to question or why it should not be accepted. Now, how do we know that the Lord accepted the Old Testament canon, the Hebrew Scriptures? Well, consider the words that we read in Luke 24 and the verse 44. Luke 24 and the verse 44, we read there, And he, that's Christ, said unto them, These are the words which I speak unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Now what was the Lord referring to by the designation, the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms? Well, he was referring to the Old Testament canon that was already in place even before he walked upon this earth. Now, many believe it was Ezra the scribe who led a council in about 300 B.C. who affirmed the canonicity of the Old Testament books, though he organized them in a manner that's quite different from the Old Testament that we know. And by Christ's reference to the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, the Lord endorses the view of the Jews of His day that the books within the three divisions, they contained the entire body of the revelation of Old Testament truth. In Christ, He frequently quoted from each of those three divisions, the law, the prophets, the Psalms, or we could say the writings as well. For example, the law. He quoted from the law. He spoke of the marriage union between Adam and Eve in Matthew chapter 19, the murder of Abel by his brother in Luke chapter 11, and the destruction of Sodom and Lot's wife in Luke chapter 17. From the prophets in Luke 4, while reading from Isaiah 61, he said in that synagogue, the Scripture is fulfilled in your ears. And then from the writings, including uh, uh, not just the Psalms, but those other books as well, the, the Savior quotes many, many times. In, Sa uh, in Matthew 21, He quotes from Psalm 8. And so the Lord, He was vindicating, He was setting His seal upon that threefold division of the Hebrew Scriptures, the Law of Moses, the Torah, the Pentateuch, the Prophets, and the writings, or the Psalms. Now, an additional proof of the completeness of the Old Testament canon and the Lord's endorsement of them can be deduced from Luke, the words of Christ in Luke 11, verses 50 and 51. So let's turn to Luke 11. And here we have the Lord's endorsement of what was already in circulation at that day, what was already completed centuries before Christ came. And here we have another endorsement. Luke 11 and the verse 50 and 51. We will read verse 49 as well, just to lead into these verses. 
The Lord says, Therefore also said the wisdom of God, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they shall slay and persecute. But the blood of all the prophets, which was shed from the foundation of the world, may be required of this generation. From the blood of Abel unto the blood of Zacharias, which perished between the altar and the temple, verily I say unto you, it shall be required of this generation. Now Christ expressly states the penalty for shedding the blood of all the prophets. And he says that that price has to be paid. It shall be required of this generation. And he proceeds, or he here, he, he gives the starting and finishing points of the river of blood of all the prophets, all those that were martyred, as stretching from the martyrdom of Abel, recorded in Genesis 4, verse 8, through to the murder of Zacharias, or Zechariah, which is recorded in Second Chronicles chapter 24, verses 20 to 23. Now that murder of Zacharias, Zechariah, had occurred in 800 B.C. However, in the study of the Scripture, in Jeremiah chapter 26, and verse 20 to 23, mention is made of Uriah. And he was a prophet who was martyred at a later date. A later date than Zacharias, around 600 B.C. Why then did Christ not declare from the blood of Abel unto the blood of Uriah? Did the Lord make a mistake? Well, obviously not, because that's impossible to the one who is truth. Now, the answer to that apparent anomaly, it lies in the arrangement of the books of the Jewish Old Testament. And when you looked at the Jewish Old Testament in that day, well, the first book was the book of Genesis, but the last book was actually the book of Chronicles, not Malachi. Not Malachi. And Christ was not speaking in terms of time, a, a chronological statement. He wasn't doing that in Luke chapter 11, verse 50 and 51. He was rather making a statement according to the order of the Hebrew canon of Scripture. And we have no shadow of doubt that all our Lord, that the Lord accepted all. All was in the Old Testament canon, the Jewish Scriptures. Now one of the other ways to ascertain the state of the, the Old Testament canon in the first century is to consider the way the New Testament writers, they utilized the Old Testament books. Even though the Old Testament is cited frequently in the New Testament, by the New Testament writers, there's no indication of any dispute over the boundaries of the Old Testament canon. There's not a single instance anywhere in the New Testament of an author citing a book of Scripture that's not in our current 39-book canon. While Christ himself had many disagreements with the Jewish leaders of his day, well, there appears to be no indication that there was any disagreement over the books that were in Scripture. And that would have been a reality hard to explain if the Jewish Old Testament canon was not settled at the time. Although it had clear differences in order with what we are familiar with in our English Bible, all of the books that we consider to be canonical were present and all the contents were the same in the Jewish Scriptures. 
composed the Word of God for the Jewish people and for the early New Testament church. So that's the canonicity of the Old Testament books. And to be honest, there hasn't been much debate over the years concerning the Old Testament. It's really when you come into the New Testament when they seek to add in extra books and, and other things. So now we want to consider the canonicity of the New Testament books. The canonicity of the New Testament books. Following the death, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus Christ, and the outpouring of the Holy Ghost on the day of Pentecost, a new phase of divine revelation began. Now, while relying on the authority of the divinely inspired Hebrew Scriptures, the church was conscious of being the recipient of new truth concerning the person and the work of Christ. Now, the ultimate source of that truth was God Himself. The Lord entrusted this truth to certain faithful people. Chief among these were the apostles. The revelation entrusted to these apostles, well, that could not be separated, however, from the earlier revelation that was given through the prophets of the Old Testament. It couldn't be separated because it was the same Spirit of Christ who had been active within the Old Testament prophets as they foretold of His coming. It's the same Spirit of Christ that was operating within the New Testament church, the apostles. Now, the Gospels and the apostolic doctrine originally was spread by the apostles themselves through preaching and teaching in person. As the apostles, they moved in their missionary endeavors. It became necessary for them to communicate with their former churches, and they did that with letters, with epistles. Originally, we have to say that the, the gospel account was spread by oral tradition. An oral tradition was really a, a great cultural thing in that day. You see, vast amounts of material could be recalled from memory orally. The rabbis, for example, well, they commonly memorized, they could recite nearly the whole Old Testament Scripture. They prided themselves on it. And so there's a great oral tradition learning it oral, not really having something in your hand. However, as the apostolic generation grew older, it became clear that the Gospels needed to be written down. And therefore, we have four Gospels that were written, two by apostles, Matthew and John, and two under apostolic oversight, Mark and Luke. And through the collection of the authoritative Hebrew-inspired Scripture was gradually and eventually added some additional writings, the Gospels and the Epistles. Now, by the end of the first century A.D., all the New Testament books were written, though they were not universally known by the church. It would be wrong for us to assume that that early New Testament church possessed a single written copy a single written volume of the Scripture, because they didn't. They didn't. They had fragments. They possibly had the whole of the Hebrew Scripture, but they didn't have all the epistles. They maybe didn't have all the Gospels. They didn't have it all. But all the books were written by the end of the first century. I have to say there were other non-apostolic writings in circulation. But while they were widely appreciated, they were not accepted as canonical. At the time, the heretical counter-gospels, we'll maybe mention some of them the next time, they weren't written by the end of the first century, but it wouldn't be long until they would appear in the scene bringing their heresies with them. The Gospel of Thomas. 
You've probably heard of things like that. Now, in the second and the third centuries, there was a consolidation of the canonical books of the New Testament that we have today, and the list was firmed by the Council of Nicaea in 364 A.D., and the Council of Carthage in 397 A.D. The list was fixed by then. It was firm, it was settled. In the letter of Athanasius, and he's the champion who uh, stood up against that error of Arianism. Well, in the letter he wrote in 367 A.D., it contained a list of the 27 books of the New Testament. Now, just to remind you, these councils, the Council of Nicaea, the Council of Carthage, they did not determine any of the books to be inspired. Rather, they simply recognized that the books which were already in use in the local churches were inspired. That's all they did. They only recognized them. They only put them together in the list. They also confirmed at that time that the canon of Scripture was closed a closed, a completed canon. But how did the church in the first place come to recognize that a particular book was inspired? Remember, they didn't make it inspired, but how did they come to recognize that it was inspired? Remember, there was other non-apostolic writings around. It wouldn't be long after the first century that there'd be these counter-gospels that would be, begin to be produced. How did they recognize a book to be inspired? Now, this is something that's been debated over the ages because really documentation is quite scant concerning this. Scholars like B.B. Warfield, well, he argued that the church accepted the inspiration and authority of the books because they were written or authorized by the apostles and prophets who were deemed as having divine authority. And he narrowed it into that really one point, either written by prophets or apostles or by those overseen uh, by the apostles. But we have to say at the same time as outlined in our Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 1, verse 5, there was an emphasis placed on the self-authenticating nature of Scripture and the testimony of the Spirit of Christ bearing witness to our souls, giving us a full persuasion and assurance that what we have is the very Word of God, the complete canon of Scripture. And there's really seven key criteria that emerged in the early New Testament church which really recognized the writing to be included in the canon of Scripture. I want to deal with those tests of canonicity. Now, by themselves, these tests, by themselves, no test can give infallible assurance of any of the 27 books of the New Testament that they are inspired. But all criteria together, bound, bound by the testimony of the Holy Spirit, leaves us in no doubt concerning the canonicity of the New Testament books as we know them. We can be assured that what we have is the Word of the living God. So what tests were applied by the church to a piece of literature to see if it was inspired and belonged in the canon of Scripture? Now, we're not going to get through all of these this morning, but we're going to make a start to these tests. Firstly, there is the test of authorship. The test of authorship. A Jewish test for the canon of the Old Testament was that the books had to be written down by Moses or one of the prophets. 
In like manner, it was a criterion of the New Testament church that for one book, or for a book to be considered part of the canon of Scripture, its penman must be one of the apostles or someone writing under the direction of an apostle or an eyewitness and companion of Jesus Christ. Now, we derive that test from the words of the apostle Peter in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 2. And there he urges us to be mindful of the words which were spoken before of the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles, of the Lord and Savior. The words of the writing prophets in the Old Testament, they were taken as inspired by the Lord. And here Peter is declaring that the words of the apostles stood on par with the words of the prophets. So the question was asked, when a book, when a piece of literature, when a letter, when an epistle came before the early church, was this book written by a man of God? It says in 2 Peter chapter 1, 21, that the, when the Scripture was given, holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. What was the person's character and reputation who wrote this book? Was he an apostle of Christ or a closest associate of the apostle? Was he an authorized messenger of God called by God to represent his will and his mind? And we can see the importance of an apostle's name, an apostle's authority, being attached to a, a book because of the numerous forgeries that appeared. And they all appealed to an apostle's authority for their own particular doctrines. We have to say no unsaved person ever wrote any portion of Scripture. Now, the books in the New Testament are generally known to be written by the apostles, except for Mark, Luke, Acts, James, and Jude. Now, it's generally assumed that Luke's words were recognized due to his close association with the apostle Paul, and John Mark's because of his labors alongside the apostle Peter. James and Jude, will they pass their test, the test, uh, because of their personal relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ as his half-brothers, and the fact that they pay, played an important foundational role in the early New Testament church. Alan Kearns, he gives a summary of the position respecting the apostolic endorsement given to the books in the New Testament canon, and he says this, the New Testament writings, with very few exceptions, were immediately recognized as the production of Christ's apostles or of their clo close collabor collaborators. Now, many, many of the writer's credentials were confirmed by acts of God. Now, a miracle was an act of God to confirm the Word of God given, given through a prophet or apostle to the people of God. It was a sign to substantiate his sermon, the miracle to confirm his message. Though it must be said that not every divine revelation was confirmed by a specific miracle, but often the apostles, they were able to perform miracles, and thus it was something assigned to substantiate their sermon or a miracle to confirm their message. 
There were true and false prophets. And so it was necessary to have divine confirmation of what were the true prophets and the true apostles. Moses was given miraculous powers to prove his call, as we read in Exodus chapter 4, verses 1 to 9. Elijah triumphed over the false prophets of Baal by a supernatural act in 1 Kings chapter 18. The messenger of the covenant, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, was attested by God through miracles and signs, as we read in Acts chapter 2 and verse 22. As to the apostles' message, in Hebrews chapter 4, we read there that Christ bore witness to them, both with signs and wonders, and with diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. Paul gave testimony to his apostleship to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12. Truly, the signs of an apostle were wrought among you in all patience, in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. The first test of canonicity, especially the New Testament books, was really authorship. Who was the author? Off the book. The second, the second test that was applied was really authority. Authority. There's authorship and then there's authority. And this criterion, it is closely related to the first. Does the book speak with authority? Thus saith the Lord, as it were. Is it authoritative? Does it have a self-vindicating authority that commands attention as being the very voice of God, the words of God? Does it speak and present itself as the Word of God? Well, some books of the New Testament, they do testify to their own authority that it is a word from the Lord. For example, the Apostle John, he he informs us that when he, he wrote the book of the Revelation, he was writing based on what was revealed to him by the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord gave him the command to write. Read there in chapter 1, Write the things, write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. There was authority. He was given the authority to write. The apostle Paul, he claims that his writings are the commands, not of himself, but of the Lord. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 And the verse 37, he says, If any man think himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things that I write unto you are the commandments of the Lord. All their books in the New Testament, they bear testimony to the inspiration of their contemporaries. For example, and therefore being inspired there will automatically authoritative. For example, Peter, he confirms that Paul's writing are on par with Scripture in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 16. And there we read also, this is, this is Peter writing, also in, in all his, Paul's epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other Scriptures unto their own destruction. Paul confirms the gospel of Luke to be Scripture, inspired to be authoritative, to be on par with the Torah or the law of Moses when he threads a verse from Deuteronomy together with a verse from Luke into one statement. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 18, and that verse begins with the words, 
For the Scripture saith, taking words from Deuteronomy and words from Luke's Gospel and saying, the Scripture saith. They're authoritative. They, they speak as the Word of God. The authoritative nature, the thus saith the Lord element, was another test of canonicity. So there was the authorship. Who wrote the book? And then there was the authority. Did it speak with the thus saith the Lord element? Now I'm going to have to leave it there this morning. And as I said, we cannot take one of these criteria in isolation. It's them all joined together, bound by the witness of the Holy Spirit that confirms that confirms and recognizes the book to be inspired and part of Holy Scripture. I don't want to start another test that really recognized the canonicity of a book because I'm not going to get it finished. But we're going to get back to it the next time and maybe lead into the Apocrypha, maybe some other books, why they're not included. And, and really, when you, simply when you apply the tests, the criteria, you see that those books, well, they don't pass the test. They fail, in fact. But being Reformation Sunday, just before I finish, being Reformation Sunday, you know, the 31st of October is that day that marks the Reformation when Luther nailed his 95 theses to that uh, castle church door in Wittenberg. But I want to leave you with the stance of the Reformers. The stance that they took against the Roman Catholic Church of the Middle Ages, that church which claimed authority over the Scripture, and that they were the ones who determined, they were the ones who determined the authenticity and the canonicity of the books in the Scripture. The Reformers refuted that stance vigorously, that the church, the church of Rome, had authority over the Scripture, and the church was the one that determined whether a book was inspired. The Reformers, they refuted that vigorously. Heinrich Bullinger, he was a Swiss reformer. He said this, The holy biblical Scripture, because it is the Word of God, has standing and credibility enough in itself. Didn't need the church to declare that it was inspired. It has standing and credibility in itself that it is the inspired Word of God. And when tests are applied to it, it will be found to be such. And therefore, he refuted the church of Rome's stance. Calvin he affirmed the Scripture preceded the church. And he quoted Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. Therefore, the Scripture cannot owe its existence to church authority. It is the Scripture that preceded the church. The church, uh, the Reformers were adamant that the church did not make the Bible, but the Bible and the operation of the Holy Spirit upon it and the application of it to the hearts of sinners made the church. It was the Word of God upon which the church is built, not the other way around. Luther, he stated, Scripture is the womb from which arises divine truth and the church. It's through the Scripture that People are born again through the incorruptible seed. It is the Scripture that gives rise to the church. And from the Scripture we have divine truth, not the other way around. I am glad that we have a canon we can trust. 
We have a canon that we can trust, a closed, a complete canon, knowing that all is included, that God wanted to be included, and all is excluded that is not from God, and that God did not want to be included. I have to say, I was, well, thinking about this, studying this, looking at the tests, thinking about all these church councils in the early days. You know, brethren and sisters, we stand on the shoulders of giants who have done the work, who have fought, who have dealt with all these heretical other books, all these other uh, spurious writings and uh, counter-gospels, and they have examined them and tested them. They have translated from the original languages into our own mother tongue. And we now have a leather-bound canon of Scripture probably more than one. Well, maybe some of those New Testament churches were sifting through all that error, had maybe one fragment, one epistle, just something to hold on to, and were really standing on the shoulders of giants. The academic and intellectual and Holy Ghost-given uh, ability of men, giants of the past, that you and I have 66 inspired God-determined books in one single volume, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New. Nothing excluded. And all that we need to know included. We're a blessed people, a very blessed people. And may we continue to treasure the canon of Scripture and set our lives alongside it as our only rule of faith and practice. Let's bow for prayer. And may the Lord bless the study to our hearts, the edification of our souls, the instruction of our intellect. We'll be able to stand firm. And as I said, we'll continue this next study. We'll look at further tests. We'll maybe go into the Apocrypha and those 14 extra books that are added by the Church of Rome, why we don't believe they should be included. There's other books as well. We'll maybe cover some of them, but we'll leave that for the next time. Let's bow in prayer. Our God and our Father, once again, my heart rejoices, leaps, O God, for this precious treasure that has been placed into our hands. And Lord, we're studying how it came about, how it was given, how it's been preserved, how it is sufficient, authoritative, inerrant, indestructible, all these glorious things. Lord, we thank the Lord where we can test the Bible. It's been tested through the ages. It stands like that rock undaunted. And Lord, it's from this book that doctrine comes, truth and promises, food, light, correction, instruction, all these things, comfort. We think even of this morning, this worship service that's about to begin in a, in, in a few minutes. And the Reverend Wagner, Lord, we're glad that he's opening up the book of God. We're glad that, that what he will turn to in this glorious, completed canon is thy word and thy truth. We don't need to fear, we don't need to doubt that he's, he's going to turn to some false gospel. But we thank thee, Lord, for placing it into our hands. And I pray that the Spirit of the Lord will come upon thy servant this morning. Lord, that thou would help him as he would preach the word of the living God, expound it and 
May the Spirit apply it to our hearts. Oh God, we thank thee for this priceless treasure. We pray, O oh God, that, that the nation again would turn to this book that can be trusted. O oh God, bless us in the season of prayer. Help us, pour out thy Spirit upon us. Grant unto us thy blessing. We pray this all in the Savior's precious and lovely name. Amen.